Welcome to Bickering Peaks with Aiden and Lindsay. Welcome to Bickering Peaks. You're Aiden. And you're Lindsay. And we are here to discuss the Elephant Men. Yes. But first, we should say Happy New Year. Oh, yeah. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Uh, it is 2018. It is. And we're kickstarting our year with this fine film. Yeah. Uh, which is se- David Lynch's second feature length. Correct. Production. Uh, but his first Hollywood-esque yes. film. Um Produced by, uh, or or funded by Paramount Pictures. Yes. Uh, Brooks Films was the producer, so that's Mel Brooks Production Company. Yes, a very interesting interesting. uh, collaboration, Mm -hmm. I should say. Yeah. Uh, And yeah, it it is his first kind of Hollywood film for which he uh, didn't have to pay for it out of his own pocket, basically. (laughs) yeah. Uh, So Eraserhead was very much an art house film, very much, you know, he produced it himself, did everything, you know, it took seven years because he ran out of money a lot. Uh, This is a more traditional film in a lot of ways, I feel. It's not just uh, the production history. This Mm -hmm. is a a bit more straightforward movie in some ways. Um, It still has a Lynchian feel to it, though. Um, and the interesting thing for us, I had never seen this film before. I've only watched it the one time. Yeah. Uh, we just watched it last night. And so I'm, I'm not as well versed. I was really just, you know, captured in the emotion and watching for the plot and the characters and everything. Um, whereas Lindsay, you've seen it a couple times now. Yeah. I mean, this was one of the, I think this was probably the very first David Lynch film I ever saw. Um, it was either this or Dune. I can't remember, but Regular listeners will remember that my father was a big David Lynch fan. Um, and fun fact, my parents went to a went on a date to see this movie. That's right. And my mom walked out of the theater. Yep. And my dad continued to watch the film. <laughs> and yet they still and got married eventually. And yet they still got married two <laughs> years later. So um, I don't know what that's a testament to or of, <laughs> but... Uh, my mom was clearly not a fan of this film. And I kind of understand why, because it's not, it's not, she did probably didn't hate it because it's a David Lynch film, but it mm. is a hard film to watch. It's very yeah. emotional and you, you can't help but kind of be wrapped up in that, the sympathy and the feeling. And there's a lot of horrible things that are done to Joseph Merrick in the film mm. and so it's it's not an easy film to watch so I totally understand yeah. why she would leave the theater mm. for it. there were points when I was watching it last night where I I went on my phone instead I was just like you know I don't want yeah. I don't want to see this so I you know I looked up the history of Joseph Merrick and, and stuff instead and um because yeah the film is it, it's quite a gut punch at times so just a quick background maybe on the film uh it was kind of circulating in the Hollywood system for a while before it was officially optioned and picked mm. up. Uh, David Lynch was attached to it fairly early on. I think that Mel Brooks, his production partner at Brooks Films, uh, was the one who approached David Lynch. He had just seen Eraserhead. Yeah. So he was very interested in meeting this guy anyway. And, and of course, David Lynch was drawn to the project immediately. Um it, it was really interesting to us to watch the, some of the special features that we have on the disc that we were watching mm-hmm. because they interviewed Mel Brooks. And this is a guy like Blazing Saddles yeah. and Spaceballs, Spaceballs yeah. and, and um, Young Frankenstein. Yeah. These are these are the films you think of when you think of Mel Brooks. And so for him to be attached to this, even if it was kind of in the background, he didn't advertise that he was part of it because of his history with the satirical comedy uh, film, comedies. Yeah. Yeah. So... 
but still the fact that that there was a meeting at some point between Mel Brooks and David Lynch and they apparently got on quite well mm. I think that's really interesting I, I turned to Aiden at that point and was like to be a fly on the wall <laughs> during meeting, this meeting yeah. no, it would have been I quite I quite like that very but, cool yeah but there were a lot of really amazing names attached to this and I mm-hmm. think going for David Lynch imagine being you know early 30s and this is your second outing as a director and you're being backed by mel brooks paramount pictures you're directing john hurt and anthony hopkins Hopkins, and Anne bancroft who's married to mel brooks and uh like the the number of people that you're that are attached to this film that are with these this great pedigree it's um that's daunting yeah. but he pulls it off it's it's a it's a really remarkably well constructed film i think it it speaks to kind of this this vision that he that david lynch had and and maybe possibly the the source material mm-hmm. um because this was based on dr treve's biography like autobiography or, or account of the of the story of joseph merrick so it's and it's not 100 percent true to the facts of the case yeah. there are some there's some dramatic dramatizations dramatizations and they've messed with the timeline yeah, a, little a little bit, bit yeah. but um for the most part it's it's a fairly accurate portrayal i would say of what this story was like yeah. um and it did win quite a few accolades i think yeah. it won the bafta that year yep. for best, uh, picture. best picture it was nominated for eight academy awards lost the best picture um nomination to raging bull i think won that year oh, yeah. uh but it was not nominated for best makeup there was no yeah, category there was no for category best makeup. For this was the film that prompted that the academy them. to yeah. create it yeah. yes so this, is, the following right. year was when they instituted the best makeup which is quite phenomenal i think yeah. to to think that that this film had such an impact well and, and david lynch received a nomination for best director right uh, again yeah. his second film yeah um no, but it is a high watermark i think for in in terms of um what the early the early lynch stuff that was that was happening it's it's not the film that most people would think of when they say we're going to sit down and watch a david lynch film you're going to go towards you know the films like Mulholland drive or a show like twin peaks like more than Velvet anything or yeah. yeah but i think in terms of I, I can see why he was why he was drawn to the film just by the subject matter and uh and because it's such a sensitive portrayal of this story um it's just it's interesting in in the context of where he ended up going, especially after Twin Peaks, with his focus on female characters and the female experience of abuse and trauma and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This lies kind of outside of that, but there's still elements coming through that early on that, um, just like an Eraserhead. You know, a lot of people have even said that this is like a Victorian Eraserhead in in a lot yeah, of ways, just yeah. because of the way that it. Uh, it's shot in black and white and there's lots of mechanical uh, juxtapositions of, you know, humanity and, and uh, machines, machines, which is something that comes up again and again and yeah. uh, in Lynch's works. So, um, but it, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting to consider why he, why he did take it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there, there's, I mean, he didn't write the first draft. The script had been floating around, like you yeah. said, for, for many years. Um, but he is credited as, Get, he got a writing credit for yeah. it, so he did contribute enough that you know obviously there's there's a well, bit went of through, it went through some significant rewrites yes, while, when the production started, but um, but yeah, so but at the same time, uh, the the bones of it are are there in this in the script, and it's not 
a typical it's not like Mulholland Drive it's not like Blue Velvet no. it's it's not even set in America I think most of his other films are all set in America yeah. Dune notwithstanding yes uh, <laughs> so I think there's there's this uh, the the core of this very Victorian style story in mm-hmm. in all senses it's a very straightforward uh, emotionally driven story about these this character almost really. a morality yeah play, it, well it is really know? yeah exactly it, so it has that Victorian vibe to it underneath um, which is not David Lynch at all like no. he's not a moralizer he's not someone for a, a straight story except for maybe the straight story which <laughs> so again I haven't watched either uh, but you know he he's you know he's much more abstract he's he's there for um, for other reasons usually when he takes on a project um, but here it, it's it's a nice balance and I think you know this is the movie that yes it got him a nomination for best director it's also what got him dune yeah it's what got him a lot of accolades it might have gotten him return of the jedi if, yes, if he wanted exactly. it um you know and you can see why because he brings a level of artistry to it that you saw in eraser head exactly and the art house sensibilities um and then they're applied to this very straightforward subject matter right. so you get this nice uh back and forth between uh the art house and the the very publicly accessible kind of entertainment-driven story. And the, that the thing that, that Lynch always seems to have in spades is that emotional gut punch, I think, um, how you described it earlier, that it's, it's, it's such an emotional story. All of his stories are emotional stories, whether you're talking about Laura Palmer or whether you're talking about Henry Spencer or whether you're talking about Joseph Merrick. These are, these are characters that he makes you look at and and we do. There are a lot of very long lingering shots on John Hurt as as the the Elephant Man as Joseph mm-hmm. Merrick, and You're, Anthony Hopkins and even. Anthony yeah, Hopkins. Yeah. yeah, exactly. On all of the characters, really. Mm-hmm. You're forced to to confront them and and emote with mm-hmm. them. I think uh, it's hard to watch this movie without crying, and I've yeah. seen it many times, so I know what's coming, and it still hits me the mm-hmm. the depth of the emotion with with within this story. Mm-hmm. So. That's something that's that's kind of a David Lynch hallmark. As much as the the quote unquote weird that everybody yeah. likes to talk about when it comes to David Lynch, yeah. this story has a lot of Lynchian emotional undertones to it that I think are really important to well, highlight. And and we talked about it, uh, especially I think at the end of the return, we talked about um, how Lynch had had a whole a wide array of tools that he used, and you know one that the return relied a lot on was that emotional manipulation you know he can, in a single scene he can create a very particular emotional Dale Cooper mood. crying when you see Sonny Jim or, or Dougie yeah, Cooper exactly right? yeah it takes it, it's and it's instant but mm-hmm. you're there along with him uh with the camera and with the characters for that ride yeah for that emotional ride yeah um and here you can see he, so I mean for a, a mass market movie um, the ability to do that is obviously very powerful, and yeah. here he did it to great effect. Mm-hmm. Um, in his other movies, he uses it not to tell the main story. The emotion is not necessarily yeah. in the main story. It's in uh, pulling and pushing on those emotional buttons to generate a different feel and a different sense of uh, character. What and, you would and call quote-unquote Lynchian, right? Exactly. Like that juxtaposition of the grotesque or the macabre and the everyday. Yeah, exactly. Which is present here in yeah. in certain ways. I think that's another thing that may have attracted him early on is that there's this character with severe deformity mm-hmm. who is at at his heart still tremendously human. Mm-hmm. And the inhumane way that he was treated is the core of the story. Yeah. 
um, which is something maybe we can we can get into. I thought I think I want to start just by giving a brief history. We, I don't I don't think we want to go scene by scene with this. No, I think this, this is no. But what, but we should talk about the history of Joseph Merrick just mm-hmm. for those who aren't familiar yes. with with his story. So um, Joseph Merrick was born in Leicester in 1864, I think. He was born, there was no outward sign of his uh, later deformity, but at around the age of two to five, accounts vary, he started to have um, extra bone, bony protuberances growing on his head. Uh, his arms were not the same size. His feet were not the same size. His skin started to thicken, and he developed these kind of warty tumor-like things on his skin. He wasn't treated for any of this. There was no real medical uh, interventions as far as I can tell, and he just continued going to school until he was about 13. His mother died when when he was 9, mm-hmm. and he continued in school until he was 13, at which point um, his father had remarried and didn't want him. So he was uh, sent to kind of fend for himself. Mm-hmm. And by the time he was 17, he was in a workhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike the film, he was in charge of his sideshow slash freak show existence. He was the one who came up with the idea to exhibit himself and his relationship with the character in the film known as Bites. Um, I can't remember the actual guy's name. I think it was Horton. His relationship with him in real life was much more equitable. They had an equal partnership um he was by all accounts treated much much better than the way he he's shown in the film mm-hmm. um but so so he was in charge of his of his existence as a quote unquote freak in the yeah. freak shows yeah. that were quite popular at the time mm-hmm. in Victorian in Victorian London but when they started when the feelings started to turn about those uh he ended up in Europe parading himself around Europe and that's where the story here in the film is that he was kidnapped and taken to France. In real life, he partnered with another man in Belgium who robbed him. And that's when he came back to London. At this point, he'd already befriended or was known to Dr. Treves, who had examined him and shown him as a, a curiosity to mm. the London Medical College. Yeah. And he had Dr. Treves' card on him when he arrived back in England. And when he was chased from the Liverpool Street Station in the film, that actually happened in real life. He was uh, treated very poorly. But someone found his Someone card, found yeah. the card and brought him to the hospital, and that's where the relationship with Dr. Treves really took off. So unlike the film, there wasn't this you know, dramatic kidnapping yeah. in the middle of the night. It all kind of happened later in life. He did spend the rest of his life at the London Hospital. He was... Um, London society was brought to him mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, but he he was friends with Princess Alexandra, Queen Victoria, um, Madge Kendall, the actress, mm-hmm. was another one of his admirers. Uh, there are people from all walks of London society came to visit him, and he was quite popular until his death at the age of 27. Officially, his death was labeled uh, as, as asphyxia, but Dr. Treves believes that he, his next dis dislocated in the night that he was actually trying to sleep like a normal person and that that is what caused him to die mm-hmm. so um the tragic end that we see yeah. in the film well, actually we did seem to kind of get it in the film in the film we don't really get an ending i mean 
we, well, we we get a hint. There's a line that says, "Oh, you know, nothing J- dies." John, no, John. <laughs> they, there's a line from one of the nurses saying, "Oh, they know John's dying, right?" And then it's like, "Yes, yes, they know." Uh, and then at the end, yes, we get him going to bed. He arranges his bed so he can sleep on his back. And then yes, we cut to his mother, and nothing will die, which pretty clearly indicates that he's going to die, but. We don't see it. It's, we're not exposed no. to it. It's, is it's that something like, that you wanted? Because you said that at the time, and I didn't see the point in in showing his death when you know that he died, and you know if you know well, the story, you know that this yeah, is how he ends. I didn't know the story. That's okay. that's the movie was there to tell me the story, yes. so it, it left it on a bit of an ambiguity for me, which I which I liked. I, I mean, it was you know if you go to enough movies like this, you'll you'll understand that yes, this means that he died. Um, uh, but you know, I kind of wanted to see. The impact of that on Dr. Treves and, and the other people, I kind of wanted to see the mourning of this man who did want to be, you know, the the, the quote from uh, the Wikipedia page that I also read on him, <laughs> uh, you know, had the quote from Dr. Treves saying, like, he was trying so hard to be normal, mm-hmm. and it was, I don't remember what he described it as, like, a, a useless but very kind of human desire to, to want to be normal, mm-hmm. um, really defined his character in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I would have liked to have seen them, you know, maybe summarize that. I mean, it Obviously, David Lynch isn't going to perhaps go down that path. Um, and it's fine and it, and it works well. But as, you know, someone just watching it, I would have wondered, like, wait, cause did he die because he slept normally? Did he just die because he was getting old and uh, he had other problems and, and that's what happened? It wasn't clear. Um, and then the lack of ending really muddied it for me. I was fine with it. However, I thought it, it was it, it's worth noting that we don't see him die. No, we don't. We don't, and we don't see any of the, that impact. It's it's left for us to kind of imagine. But I like I think what that's important like that that it ends with him because it is his story, and that's that's where the story ends. There is no more story for any of those people after Joseph Merrick is gone because Joseph Merrick is the reason that we're here, mm-hmm. and I think that's where the most interesting part of this film hinges for me is that when when you start the film were no different than the voyeurs, the people who were mm-hmm. who were coming into the tent to see the elephant man. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the film, we learn who Joseph Merrick is and we become it, it's not so much important that we that our curiosity is sated. We don't because every one of us, I'm sure, the first time we watch it, we want to see this makeup job. We want to see what the elephant man looked like. We want to hear him talk. We want to see how he re- interacts with people. And it's it's less important as the film goes on when we as we start to identify with with Merrick mm-hmm. and we start to feel his pain and his fears, that becomes more important than any sense of voyeurism that we had. And it turns the tables on us in a lot of ways by not just uh, equating us with the bad people in the film because this is why we came to the film in the first place was mm-hmm. to just like those voyeurs was to see the elephant man it it also it, we're forced to empathize with this uh, grotesque creature that for a lot of people it's hard to empathize with and especially at that time and even to this point to this day we have issues um individual issues identifying and empathizing with people who look differently than we do mm-hmm. or who act differently than we do um, or who have different experiences than we do. So I think that's um, that's a real triumph for the film that it it puts us on the back foot a little bit while at the same time forcing us forward to come and meet him on his terms. So it's, it's important to me at the end that the story ends 
on this note of he it seems like he died on his terms and he mm-hmm. chose the way even if he wasn't aware of the fact that he might die he seems he seems to know that this is what would happen yeah but there's no indication that he was ending his own life he didn't make that choice but it still was his choice in a, in a weird yeah, way yeah he's willing to die for for the pursuit of what he wants which is normalcy, normalcy. yeah exactly and and that's um yeah, it, it's it's noble in a way. It's mm-hmm. it's sad in another way. You know, it's it's his character is at the heart of the movie, and it's it's an amazing character. I mean, mm-hmm. really, at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's this this incredible experience that he has of surviving as this person who's basically not a member of society, mm-hmm. um, and is you know has difficulty interacting with that society for not just you know because of how he looks but just physically like he can't mm-hmm. he can't shake hands he yeah. he has he has difficulty talking and having people understand him um you know th- there's all these these aspects to him you know not feeling like not feeling loved basically yeah. at the end of the day um and then we watch him grow and become loved and that's that's just that's the that's the moral journey that we go on with him uh, and it's it's quite something do you feel like he does like he is loved by the end of the film well let's let's talk about this because we chatted about this briefly yesterday mm-hmm. is is where um because th- this is one of the moral questions that's raised uh dr treves talks about it with the nurse ratchet i know that's her name but the head nurse at the, the hospital <laughs> mother's head mother's head uh so the the two of them talk like well you're just putting him on another sideshow with all these society people i mean at the start it is a blatant connection between what the doctor does and what the sideshow does where they he literally has a curtain curtain open and there uh, the alpha man is again and he even calls him that yes um and describes all his deformities and stuff it's just for a different audience it's paying it's paying doctors as opposed to paying public right um but then it gets a bit more ambiguous as the movie goes on and you know he's introducing him to people uh and we see one of those interactions well we see a couple of them but we see one with you know, a society couple that's that's come to, to see him and the woman is very terrified and, and shaking. Um, and we had different kind of interpretations of, mm-hmm. of how that, that worked and how that uh, that kind of benefited John or didn't. So well, it's Joseph it, and John. In yeah, the movie, it's called John. Yeah, but John was a, a misnomer. He, yes. he was quoted, or uh, I think Treves wrote down that his name was John, but that was not his name. Yeah. And it was corrected. Or it, So we're going to make an effort to call him Joseph Merrick. Well, <laughs> wherever possible. Movie, but in the movie, is he, is, yeah. he is, yes. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that, that scene was interesting to me because um, on first watch, you think that this is maybe uh, um, these people are genuinely interested in having a relationship with him but it it becomes clear i think on subsequent watches once you see what happens immediately afterwards and you start to see the the um the correlation i guess between what the porter the night porter is doing with the rabble outside Mm -hmm. who come to see him every night and what treves is doing with these society people who come to see him every day um she's not she's she is terrified but she's putting on a front and it's it's this artificial uh mask almost that she's wearing to prove to herself or to prove to the people in her social circle that she did this thing and it's not really for his benefit i think it's for her benefit it's a selfish need it's the same need that that those the the low paying low class rabble to come to his wind coming to his window at night have 
to satiate their curiosity. That's all she's doing, but she's doing it under this this guise of benevolence or or uh, I don't know, like um, she's bestowing herself on him because she's she's high society. She's mm-hmm. not, you know, low class, so it's better. I don't know. I felt I felt very awkward about it because it seems like Merrick himself is okay with it. So I don't I don't want to take away from the experience of someone who is, you know, in that position. If they're okay with it, then well, like I, I kind of have to respect that. And I think that's the the biggest difference is that. <clears throat> It's simply a matter of consent. Do you want to do you want to meet these people? Mm-hmm. Do you want them to look at you? Do you want to talk to them? And for him, the answer is yes throughout the the you know last three quarters of the movie for the most part. Uh, when he's talking to the society people, when he's talking to the doctor and Treves' wife, um, and Treves' wife brings it up with Dr. Treves himself, says, you know, like, well, he he brings it up with her. He says, Am I really that different from the sideshow person? I mean, I'm now in demand because I found the elephant man. And, mm-hmm. and I've personally benefited from him, you know, meeting all the people, all my friends and all my society right. know-hows. Uh, that's not a phrase, but anyways, uh, meeting <laughs> all the all of his friends, right? And he questions, like... Treves does. Treves does. Yeah. He questions this, like, am I any better? And his wife puts forward the argument that I think, which is that it's actually beneficial for uh, Merrick to to do it in this case is he he wants to meet people he wants to have someone he can talk with and, and he is a smart guy he's he's yes. a very cultured kind of well-read yeah he can read well and he enjoys reading and uh when he every time he meets someone he seems to be generally enjoying it even though i think the way i interpreted that scene with the society couple was that he understands what his effect is on people who see him for the first time they're terrified and so he offered like she's shaking and he says oh it's and she says oh i'm just cold and he knows that's not really the thing. He knows she's scared of her. But he, of him. Of him, sorry, yes. Uh, but he offers her a way out. He says, oh, yes, it's it's chilly this time of year. I don't know. Again, I didn't watch it. So to me, I, I feel like he's willing to put himself out there, which is just a normal social interaction. I feel like the whole voyeuristic aspect of it, the origin of why they want to meet him probably differs. Some people want to just meet him because they hear he's an interesting guy. Probably all of them have a little bit of that morbid curiosity of I want to see the deformed person uh, who's also a society individual but once they've actually talked to him quite a few of them seem to actually want to be his friend the actress being the best example yes um, uh, you know she when she's up on stage at the end and she points to him she, it's heartfelt that she is or he is her friend mm-hmm. um, and that's a relationship that could only happen if Dr. Treves brought her over and said yes I, sure. I'm willing to introduce you so I feel like he, Merrick, is, yes, part of it is still a, a sideshow, but that's only at the initial part. After that, once he's talked to them and if they come back again and they want to continue talking to him and it's the conversation that they want, which is what it is with Dr. Treves and his wife, that's just a normal social interaction. They've, they've, been, sure. they've made friends. And whatever the root of it was um, may be insulting to Merrick. But he he's aware of that. He's aware of his limitations. He is aware that might be how he has to meet people, but he can still, uh, you know, gain the benefit of having a, a good friendship out of it. And I do agree that that is the case for sure with Dr. Treves and his wife and Mrs. Kendall and the nurses and the, the other staff members that he. So encounters. basically, everyone we see. But I do think that the point of having that society couple is to show that Merrick isn't as aware of it. You read it differently mm. than I did because. He doesn't see he he's having a discussion about how 
the way he's portrayed or the way he comes off at first glance is frightening. No. That's the that's the conversation, the subject matter of what they're yes. discussing. And what does he say? And yet he's oblivious to the fact that this I think he's oblivious How to the fact How can he be oblivious to it? Okay. Sorry, go on. <laughs> I think he's oblivious to the fact that she is frightened by him. And I think that that obliviousness is partly because of why Joseph Merrick wants to be accepted. He's so desperate for this acceptance that he's willing to or maybe not willing, but he's he's unwilling, he's in denial about the reason that they're coming to see him. Some of them. And I think that's the point of why they're shown, of why they're there. Because but, immediately um, after this is when is when Treves and Mother's Head have the conversation about this being just a different kind of sideshow. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important that that scene was in there because not everybody had those good motives. And it's only after he's talked about in the papers that people start coming to see him. Mm-hmm. Whereas some of the people who come to see him are coming to see him beforehand and are genuinely there, like Mrs. Kendall or like the, the Treves couple, are there because they genuinely have a, a human interest in becoming friends with him and in bettering his life i don't think that's the case for everyone and i think that that's i think that's why it's it's important that that scene is in there to show that there were ulterior motives and and to show that because that's my next question is not just did he actually find love which i think he did i think there were people who genuinely loved him but i think the next question becomes why was he seeking love from these people why was he okay with being exhibited in a sense by Treves for this higher class of people and I think it's because of what this scene shows is that he was desperate for acceptance by these people because he he even well, says that when he meets with Mrs. Treves that he hopes that his mother would would love him more because of who he's spending his time with now if only she could see me with these fine friends then she would accept me and she would love me I think that there's a deep psychological need on his part to be accepted by the people that he surrounded himself with that that is that is yeah. why he's willing to um he's either willing to be blind to the the real reason why she's shaking why she's not able to hold her teacup or he's in denial about the fact that she's can, afraid can to I see him. disagree with him yes can of course say- well this is what i'm saying like <laughs> I let you talk. You yeah, can let me absolutely. talk. Right? And I'm, I'm very glad you, you make you no. Know, and it, absolutely, it's a very important moral question. Of the, it's one of the ones that's not directly answered. I think there's a lot of morality in this story about you know good versus evil and appearance versus reality. Mm-hmm. It's you know it is basically Victorian 101 right. literature. Shakespeare it goes back to all the way right. Um, but this is one moral question that's not answered outright. Is because there is some moral ambiguity here. Uh, and even the very last scene when. Uh, um, Merrick is saying thank you to Treves for the wonderful night and everything and you've been such a great friend and I, I owe you a lot for this and uh, Treves responds by saying yes I owe you as well we, mm-hmm. we I have benefited from this yes. relationship as well as well sorry uh, you know that that indicates that there is there is a bit of commercial yeah yeah commercial interest almost into this mm, it's it's, okay. it's shared interest it's uh, shared benefits a mutual benefit because of just there's no it's not an intrinsic desire to to love this 
man. Well, it may not have begun that way, but maybe there is at the at the end. But it, it certainly started out of some kind exactly. of exactly. And and yeah. there are side benefits that that are not just related from the love of one one human being to another, yeah. which is just the relationship itself is its own benefit, right? They've they've both gathered some other benefits from their relationship, yeah. um, but to completely disagree with what you said about that 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 scene it is a very important scene but i mean the fact that he is literally saying i know people are scared when they see me that's what he's saying when she's scared seeing him he's very much aware out of his own words he is very clearly aware but could that not be an ironic I, I, like no, the, the that irony is, that he doesn't understand no, the, that she's afraid why are you thinking that he doesn't understand why aren't you thinking that she is that he is explicitly understanding what's happening in this very because moment and he's trying to dissuade her he's trying to say i understand i don't this see I, I don't see that i see it i see his desperation to be liked more in that scene that's all i'm saying and i'm saying the desire to be liked is not a bad thing it's not a bad thing and it's not a bad all. thing for him in this no case it's either. not he's but he's having an opportunity to absolutely. meet someone who could potentially become a friend that's absolutely he's putting true. his best foot forward and he's explaining that i understand if you're hesitant about engaging with me i don't see any problem with that that's fine and i'm not you're completely misunderstanding what i'm saying because yeah. i'm no i'm not saying this is a problem i'm not saying it's a bad I, thing right, i'm just right. saying I'm that there is, it. there is there is a deeper level of tragedy in the story that i think only comes across in the direction in the film probably doesn't show up on the page as, as much that is only present if he is somewhat oblivious to what is happening in this in this moment simply because he is so overwhelmingly grateful to have people in his life who are these higher class of people i don't see how based on his character i don't see how he could fall into that trap because he's He's seen the complete evils of, of, of the world on, in his other half as a spring And then shot. he's being given all these wonderful things. Yes. And so he's believing that the goodness... And this is, this is something that is completely Victorian morality as well, that the higher class you are, the more morals yes, you had, and exactly. the better morals you, you, yeah. you had. Yeah. The lower class you were, even if you were the best person, if you had no money, you were worthless. Yeah. So... If if he's buying into that, which everybody would have at the time, mm-hmm. then he's not going to see that that this person is maybe not there out of the best of intentions. He's going to see her money and he's going to see her fancy attire and he's going to see her her good manners and he's going to assume that she is uh, on the same level as all the other you know high class, high moral people that, that Victorian well, and, and, morality tells us. Yes. And and just to be fair, the rest of the movie backs that up, right? Everybody who's working class, except for the other freaks, quote unquote, freaks right. themselves who who spring him loose and, and help him go back to, to London. Um, everyone who's working class is pretty evil in this book in the, yeah. in this in this film, right? Like uh, the yeah the what's the bad guy's name? Who, Mr. Bites. Mr. Bites. Uh, the which is spelled like gigabyte, like B Y T E S. Yes, yeah, it's interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that there's Mr. Bites like B I T E S. There might be. I don't know. I'm sure there was. Sorry be. if there's a Mr. or Mrs. Bites listening. <laughs> listening. Yeah, sorry about that. God damn those dicks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, like everybody else in it, uh, you know, all the the kids. Even when he comes back on the train, yeah. and the kids are just seeing him, and they start shooting spitballs at him and stuff, and chasing him down the streets or down the, the, the subway station, uh, it's it's really, really rough. Yeah. Like, everybody who's poor is evil. And everybody um, who's, who's wealthy, wealthy has... Loves, winds up liking him yeah. and, and is able to see him for, for who he is. Um, 
so I mean within the world that that is created here which is yes very reflective of, of Victorian morality um, it makes sense that he would uh, seek out the approval and his fine friends that he that he that he uh, talks about so much really are there because um, or they, they they do reflect positively on him mm-hmm. because they are wealthy exactly. and because they have these manners that's and the stuff. whole point behind behind the Victorian morality yeah, surround yeah. yourself with a better class of people to reflect your better class yeah yourself mm-hmm. um but i think that's why it's more it's interesting to me as a storyteller why else would you put a high class person being afraid unless to show that that high class yeah doesn't necessarily mean that they're better just like <laughs> why 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 would you put a low class person like maybe the nurse or um, well, or the kid who the kid, helps exactly him, yeah, mr so bites much, yeah. lad yeah you know being a good person being elevated mm-hmm. and i think that's that's not a Victorian morality thing. That's something that you wouldn't well, find in Dickens the, necessarily. But uh, you, there's the noble, you know, the thrifty working class who's whose moral heart is good and will one day rise up. I mean, the kid's only eight. Yes, right? if he you're reading an Elizabeth Gaskell novel, absolutely, that is exactly. where you'll find it. Yeah. But it's it's something that comes out of um, postmodernism and something that that we can now look at. You know, in hindsight, yeah, we can we stupid. can switch switch those things, and yeah. we can show a rich person with no heart and a low class person with all the heart. Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 holds up if you if you look at it that way. So it's a very modern, in that sense. If if you adopt my reading of that scene, it's a more modern take on Victorian morality. Well, it def- I mean, the very fact that it that it poses that question directly to mm-hmm. the audience by having the characters talk about it is yeah. indicates that yes, this is not a, a clear cut issue, which it would be in Victorian times. And yeah. that's probably is a choice by Lynch and the other writers to say, well, let, let's think about this. Cause yeah, there is, there is a moral gray area there. Um, and I, I think it's interesting that we had such different takes on it because yeah. honestly, I thought it was pretty over like bang over the head morality about, you know, uh, and, and I think you, any other director I would have agreed, but I think when you've got David Lynch and you've got someone with, with this, um, this artistic sense and this, his own moral sense about the world, which we see in later films like Blue Velvet or Twin Peaks even, um, I think you have to look a little bit deeper and, and there there is something more going on there and it's just in the way that the scene is filmed and the way that it's blocked and those are all de- decisions that David Lynch would have had a hand in as director. So, um, Yeah, no, it's true. Our first official baker of this episode and of 2018. Well done. Nothing well take long at all. Yeah, no, it didn't. Good. It's January 2nd. My God. We're awesome. Um, uh, yeah, so let, let's talk a bit about... Um, was there anything else about the story itself that you wanted to directly tackle? I mean, I think... Um, I mean, there were some really hard sequences to watch when they invade his house. I mean, they show him the mirror, yeah, which was indicative of uh, his deepest fear, you know, because there was a mini dream sequence, maybe, is how we interpreted this. Well, and I, I, yeah, let's talk about this a little bit, because the, the, there were three dream sequences, sort of, that you could talk mm. about in the film. There's the one that kind of opens the film, yep. which is a very dramatic sequence, very Lynchian sequence, yeah. of a woman being trampled by elephants but that's read by many people as a rape scene yeah, yeah and this is interesting because this is the story that merrick told his whole life was that and and it's a common thing throughout the 1800s into the 1900s that um the things that a mother an expectant mother experienced in her during her pregnancy would impact the baby and so the story that he told everybody especially during his show was that his mother was either attacked by or frightened by a herd of elephants in Leicester somehow 
um, yeah. during the fourth month of her pregnancy and that this is what caused him to be born this way, uh, to look like an elephant. So this is what's referenced at the beginning of the film, but in David Lynch's hands, of course, it becomes this, you know, dark, psychosexual, yeah. uh, violent scene of potential bestial rape, yeah. right? And and so it's it's very hard to watch, and it's kind of referenced at another point um, during a dream sequence, a nightmare sequence mm-hmm. that uh, Merrick, Merrick has, has yeah. where he, um, he, I think he's awoken at, is that the night that he's awoken by by the night porter or is he no, walking by the bells? No, it's, no, uh, it's, uh, I don't remember because, again, it was only once, but I'm pretty sure it was just on its own. It was kind of like he was going to bed, he had this dream sequence, and then mm. we cut to Treves, I Maybe. think, was in the next scene. So. But either way, it's, it's, it's pretty close to the middle of the film when he mm. has this dream, and it's at the point when you start to really, you're really empathizing with mm-hmm. Merrick, and you start to see that this is not, this is not someone who needs to be feared. This, this is you know, he has feelings himself and he has these deep fears and he has these nightmares and he's afraid of the dark. He's afraid of nighttime, you know, mm-hmm. and that that only comes out after you've been exposed to him in the way that other horror movie villains are shown. Like we have all these tropes of horror films throughout the film, dark corridors and gaslights and scary, creaky noises and intense ethereal whooshing and all of that that would lead you to suspect that, you know, uh, Jason Voorhees might be around the next corner, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's it's Joseph Merrick, and so, and then not only is he not a monster, but he is actually the protagonist and is or a protagonist. Mm-hmm. He's the one you want to cheer for. He's the guy we we're supposed to um, be empathizing with. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really masterful, and that's something that again David Lynch is really really wonderful at doing making taking that expectation and completely subverting it's yeah. often within the same scene the scene where Treves goes to visit Merrick for the first time in the cave the, mm-hmm. the the place where he's living with bites and the boy um is treated like any other horror scene but it's immediately turned on its head when we see the horrible condition that that Merrick is living in so well and really it's turned on its head when uh Treves starts crying at well the yeah sight of exactly him. I mean you're, you're like the right away you can tell that Treves is affected by it on a certain level, uh-huh. that, that's that's more than everyone else who's ever seen exactly. Elephant Man. And he's the first person to really reach out in the film, in the story of the film, mm-hmm. to help him. Yeah, and the, it, but the, the third the third dream sequence happens sort of towards the end, I think, when uh, it, it's during the death scene. I would I would. Mm-hmm. It's basically. It. I think is it a dream? Yeah, I guess you'd it, call yeah. it a dream. It's the outro sequence, basically, yeah. and it's it's his mother coming to life and repeating this this phrase of uh, nothing ever dies. Yeah. Kind of reminded me of Game of Thrones, but we'll not get into that. Uh, and yeah, yeah. So, but the, it's the middle one that, that interested me because, you know, it is kind of his fear. And, mm-hmm. you know, the final kind of kick in the pants, well, right before the kicks actually come, is uh, the arrival of a mirror. And we're told early on that there's no, to be no mirrors in, yes. in John's room. Uh, is, it, you know, it's, it's interesting because when they finally do capture, when the worst happens to him, when uh, Bites comes back and, the, the mob has come in and they're breaking all his stuff and messing pouring up his alcohol room. in his mouth, yeah, getting him drunk. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the last thing they do is show him his own face, and he's terrified. And that was that was the most heartbreaking moment yeah. for me because it was it's obviously his fear as expressed in the nightmare. And then to see it come true is yeah. just 
really, really painful. I mean, even everything that comes after that with bites, taking them back to, to France or Belgium or wherever and, and carting them around was kind of like, I knew he was going to get out of it because, um, you know, there's no way they're going to let him die in a place off like that, sure. you know, just as a storytelling device. It was too happy or too uplifting of a movie for that. Um, but that that moment right there, because that was just, you know, his own his own uh, pain, you know, it was just a pain that was going to happen to him at some point. Right. Um, that he would see himself finally. Uh, but seeing it happen was was quite painful. Yeah. It just just the, the idea that the monster would have a fear mm-hmm. and that that fear would be yeah. himself is quite telling and quite poignant and dramatic. Mm hmm. There were a few things that I wasn't crazy about in the film, though. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was this uh, it, the true-to-life intrusion of the, the royal family in the affairs of the London Hospital when Princess Alexandra yeah. brings the letter from Queen Victoria from her mother-in-law saying, um, "Yeah, we good job. Keep keep it up. Yeah, yeah, exactly." Yeah. And and suddenly, you know, the, this Deus ex machina moment where Merrick is finally allowed to live in the hospital against the the wishes of the board because hospital this hospital in particular um didn't didn't help incurables mm-hmm. um so the benevolence of victorian society to try and uplift people only went so far in this particular hospital yeah. and it was because of Merrick and the hospital administrator Cargom uh to it was up to them to kind of convince everyone. Yeah. And and in in the end, it wasn't even them. It was just the queen coming in and saying, well, actually, you're doing a great job, so here, keep it up. But in reality, he he did become friends with the royal family. He did, really. and, and Queen Victoria had audiences with him. Yeah. So, I mean, this is not, it's not completely out of the ordinary, out of the, the question that this would happen, but it just felt like it, it yeah. undercut Dramatic, the, yeah, in terms of uh, film pacing, yeah, it was yeah. very much. Although, again, the whole... Um, the the kind of surface level fears of Merrick of whether he'll be reduced back to yeah. destitution and becoming a, a sideshow freak really kind of never amped up for me. I was never really terrified that he was really going to, and this was just again on a first watch and not knowing much of the story. Um, I figured as soon as Treves brought him into the hospital that he was basically okay for the rest of it. Right. I mean, none of the other uh, imp- problems that were. Uh, kind of introduced really scared me at any point in time. So to have, you know, them solve one of them via the queen felt fine for me. I think it just would have been nicer to see the the relationships that he had with Dr. Treves and with Cargon to to kind of those things be the things Mm. that convince everyone or Merrick himself be the one that convinces them to allow him to stay. Yeah, that would have been nice. Yeah, but you know, if you're going to take liberty with the story, that would have made a better story in my mind. Probably, but, yeah. um, but it was a way to introduce this connection with the royal family, which was true. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. the other thing that I, I can't decide if I really liked it or really didn't like it was the the scene in Belgium where the the other sideshow oddities mm-hmm. break him out of the this prison that he's in. Um, I, I like it a lot on one level because it feels like this uh, affirmation of oddness or something that, mm. that David Lynch is known for doing. Like, you know, taking people with physical deformities or um, odd things about them, like the log lady or something, and elevating them to these almost saintly positions. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it turns, like you, you brought it up earlier, this Victorian morality on its head that these you know, little people and 
um, Siamese twins and giants and werewolf ladies and mm-hmm. or bearded ladies bearded or whatever ladies. would uh, have the the goodness of heart mm-hmm. that society doesn't believe that they have no. at that time to actually spring him from from his prison. Yeah. I loved that that that, that was the hum- the humanity came from the people that were least. Considering least humane. Yeah, least yeah. humane. Or yeah, least which humane. is really the whole story, right? I, mean, I think that, that's, that's yeah. Merrick in a nutshell, is right. that he was a human trapped in an inhumane body, right? But I think that's part of why I didn't like it, was because it did beat you over the head with that yeah, notion yeah. again. So it was it was very unsubtle. But then, I mean... Yeah, the movie's not a really a subtle thing. And that was one of the funniest things I read when I was re- recapping the, 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 the film on Wikipedia, sorry. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it yes. two out of four stars because, like, I don't know what the what the meaning of the thing. What the is movie he trying was. to say about what, humanity? Yeah, and it's like, dude, <laughs> there's no way he could have said it any clearer. Uh, so yeah, that 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 kind of bo- I was in the same mind, you know. It was, yeah. it was a little over the top, but um, it was but nice it to see Kenny Baker there. Yeah, exactly. That was cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As the plumed dwarf, I believe he's credited <laughs> credited as. Yeah, but yeah. Um, so uh, let's talk a bit about. The movie as a Lynch movie. I was just going to say the same thing. Right. Aiden, We're wow. on the same page. On the same wavelength. So we did talk about it a bit already. The, um, you know, his use of, uh, or his, yeah, well, you just brought it up. His use, I'm putting air quotes around, of the grotesque or the other, the the, the physically unnatural, maybe mm-hmm. we could say. Uh, you know, he uses these characters in all of, a lot of his works. Um, everything from the Eraserhead Baby. Yes. Still scares me to, you know, here it's, you know, it and, and it's an interesting transformation from a race ride where the um there's there's only a one really human humanifying moment about the race ride baby when he gets sick and then uh Pete has to go in and and you know he he boils some water and, mm-hmm. and you know tries to get his temperature down or something. Um, you know, that that's that's as human as the baby gets. After that it's still just, you know, this this visceral fear Mewling, of his, crying yeah, thing thing right it's it's really not allowed to become human and then here the alpha man the whole point of the movie is that the alpha man is a human yes. and he's not he's I, not, not an, an animal. animal yes yeah. exactly um and it's it's kind of a a switcheroo for me because a switcheroo a switcheroo uh because one of my one of the criticisms i've seen online and i thought was fairly justified up until watching this film actually was was lynch uses you know physically otherly abled people uh, as kind of grotesque and mm-hmm. as, you know, others that you're supposed to notice and look at and, and think, oh, that's weird that that they're, they're, there's something wrong with them or there's something at least special about them. Yeah. Um, but here, that's the exact opposite of the rest of the film. Right. Uh, morally, again, speaking, the, the grotesque and the other is just like everyone else. They have basic needs and desires and basic humanity underneath it all. I wonder if that is possible, if that kind of message were, would be possible in any other type of film other than a Victorian morality yeah. story. Because we don't really question that a little person or that someone with a disability is still human. Yeah, We might have trouble relating to them, and we might have issues with um, the political correctness of what do we call this this disability or mm. or how do we reference this and and those are constantly shifting and it's just part of our our growth as a society but i don't see that story having the kind of gravitas that a story set in victorian london would mm-hmm. have so i feel like this is the perfect vehicle yeah. for 
for this kind of um, moral question yeah. to be brought up. Yeah. Because we don't question it now. Exactly. Which is a Yeah, it's, way. It's, it is. It's a little odd to think about it that way because, um, yeah, because the criticism by and large is that Lynch doesn't treat them as human. You know, it, you know the, the log lady is not really a normal Well, they are very person. other. They, they are yes. other, but they're higher. I feel well, like in, when... in some cases, another, like uh, Richard Pryor in Lost Highway is sure. just kind of there he's just he he's odd and, and it's really just kind of for oddity's sake um i'm trying to think of some other good examples um, well i mean the eraser head baby the eraser head is obviously the most important one uh in, dune, in, in dune uh the whatever harkonnen i think uh is just he's all pimply and gross because he's supposed to be evil and you're supposed sure. to know it just by looking at him and stuff like okay, that. okay but in fairness that source material is not david lynch so we, we don't really have a lot he doesn't have a lot of leeway true, he's true. not going to you know, have him be played by some yeah. gorgeous hunky Kyle McLaughlin. <laughs> sure, or Sting. <laughs> or Sting. Uh, yeah. In a speedo. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, like Inland Empire had some of it too. Sure, but, um, I, but I feel like like these are characters that are always given, if not like totally exalted, they, they are lifted above their station a little bit just by virtue of them having, even if the other characters don't notice it, we are supposed to notice it. The Log Lady is odd. But she's special in a, in a good way. She's not, um, you, you know, people listen to her. She has wisdom. Mm-hmm. And if you don't listen to her, it's at your own peril, you know? But but doesn't that kind of imply that they, they, they in some way they're not human? I mean, you think of the yeah, little no, man okay. from another I, place. I, I, get, I totally get what you're yeah. saying now because the opposite is happening in Eraserhead with, yeah. with this being... Um, someone who is who was totally seen as inhuman or, or mm-hmm. animalistic being um, put in a position where he can elevate himself by virtue of his mm-hmm. being well-read or well-versed in Shakespeare or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Which yeah. doesn't really happen, I suppose, in, in other Well, in more, other Yeah, exactly. I mean, think of Twin Peaks. I mean, the little man from another place mm-hmm. is a little man. Uh, the giant is a giant before mm-hmm. he's the fireman, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're defined by their... By their oddity, yeah, I guess yeah. their, their their deviation from from a suspected norm, right? right. So, that's that's uh, it's a fair criticism, I think, in a lot of cases because he doesn't provide that 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 humanizing backstory that that comes across in the Alpha Man. And that's fine. I think that that the uh, the other way of looking at this is that by not singling out these people as needing to be coded as human. It implies that they already are. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a sense that that yes, these people are odd and they have their quirks and they have their things that make them better. But but we never question that they were, even if they're odd or even if they yeah. live off in the woods by themselves or whatever, they're still part of our the fabric of our society. Mm-hmm. We've already accepted them, but they just they do their own thing you yeah. know what i mean there there's no question that they're human mm-hmm. so it's another way of of i think addressing that question yeah of the the humanizing um oddness or yeah. otherness otherness yeah um yeah it's, so it's yeah. it's you it's know something in, we can come back to and look yeah. at more because there there's there's definitely a lot of it uh especially in some of his later movies and and maybe we can bring that up when it when it comes back, but I think I thought this was a very interesting counterpoint to that, just because, I mean, this is that is the whole movie is mm-hmm. that, you know, another is still human, and that was, it was just profound to me that, uh, 
perhaps part of what drew David Lynch to the project was perhaps the macabre and the, the oddity of it. Uh, and yet, at the end of the day, his role as the director was to bring out the humanity uh, underneath that story. Yeah. Um, and it's it's something that he perhaps doesn't do as much in, in other films. Well, so we'll and it, I mean, let's be fair again, this the source material was not his. Mm-hmm. He had a, a writing credit, but that was for rewrites that happened after the original screenplay was already finished. So, yeah. And you can't deviate so much from you know, actual no. fiction or non-fictional events. Sure. So, no, but, I mean, but at the end of the day, it's his film. He's the director and, 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 and he there are, there did are a choices, great job of, yes. yeah, of the, doing that. The choices that he made um, reinforce this idea that um, Merrick was striving to be seen as human mm-hmm. and in the end was. Yeah. And that's not something that is afforded other characters but like you said, we'll return to that, I think, when we come across yeah, yeah, some of the other instances yeah. of disability and this sense of um, otherness that mm-hmm. comes with these differently abled people that populate some of Lynch's later films. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of the other things that, that are really great about this film in, in a Lynch ter- Lynch paradigm frame sure. of reference yeah, yeah. are the, this, this mechanical, yeah. the, these mechanical undertones that mm-hmm. come across. Um, there's just tons of these intercut moments where you see just smokestacks billowing this dirty coal smoke into yeah. the London air or machines that literally aren't doing anything. Yeah, that we can tell. They- you just have these humans pushing levers or something very yeah. much like the man in the planet without having any purpose. Mm-hmm. And even Dr. Treves says as much. He's like, he you does. can't reason with them. They're these machines are terrible. I don't like them because... Well, and, and he's doing it. He says that, and I made note of that in my notes, that um, he's he, he's trying to help heal someone from an injury that's caused on the job, which is something he says will be happening more often as we mechanize our yeah, society. So it's kind of an, an indictment of um, in de- the Industrial Revolution and mm-hmm. industrialized London. But in a way that we brought up with Twin Peaks, when you have these machines cutting through wood that open every single episode of of the original series of Twin Peaks and um, the inhumanity that surrounds Henry Spencer and Eraserhead as he walks through his neighborhood and there's just this overwhelming cacophony of of industrial sounds. We still have that in London, but it's the start of it. Mm -hmm. I think that's another thing that would have drawn him to this is that this is the first time in history that you could have a story that is set against the backdrop of an industrial society. And London was the industrial city. city. It was it yeah. was the biggest city in Europe, yeah. one of the biggest cities in the world, and it was totally in the process of transforming, of, uh, transforming into, into this yeah. industrial society. So, yeah. um, of course, David Lynch was going to be yeah. drawn to that. Yeah. And and the sounds are so perfect. Alan Splett was one of the sound designers, again, on, on this. So that background noise is... It's the background noise of modern life, mm-hmm. and it starts here. And I love that that's part of the fabric of The Elephant Man, and it's one of the reasons why people say it's it's like Eraserhead, but just mm-hmm. in Victorian London, yeah. because of that mechanical background. Although it's interesting, because I thought it would tie in a bit more thematically, Like, and I was kind of searching for, for mm-hmm. a tie-in of, of you know man versus machine as, as a... Yeah. you know, a rough approximation of that, that ethos. Um, and it doesn't really fit in with the rest of Joseph Merrick's story. Uh, the rest of it's kind of 
you know, man versus man, man versus society, you know, man versus himself wanting to fit in and stuff like that. Aiden has has obviously retained all of the information from his high school English classes. Yes, which you taught, <laughs> which you teach, and so yes. therefore you also remember. <laughs> I uh, give you an A plus. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I w- I was kind of looking for for more connections, and uh, I mean, in some ways, uh, you know, I guess you could look at the body as a machine as well mm-hmm. that operates independently and it's done no favors to to joseph Merrick sure. over his life right it's it's basically betrayed him and injured him in much the same way mm-hmm. uh that the man being operated on was was betrayed by by yeah. the machinery right um but that's not really made super explicit at all throughout the thing there's 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 very it's not like there's a a zoom in on his body and and it's just a factory underneath no and he never like mentions that. anything about his body betraying him no, or anything like no. that he's kind of accepting yeah of his condition with one exception there is a scene where he asks dr treves if he can yeah. be cured yeah and i think that that might be the closest we come to any kind of uh, man versus machine element in merrick's story yeah. particularly just because with the industrial revolution comes a kind of scientific revolution Mm -hmm. that would have benefits in the medical community and in spite of everything else that they're able to do in you know the advanced society of 1880s london they can't cure him so he doesn't it's not like he has hope he he understands and i think he knows the answer to that question before he even asks it but there's still that sense that um we're in this advanced age. We should be able to cure this, and you can't cure it. So maybe that's maybe mm-hmm. that's a point. Yeah, and it's it's definitely a ju- uh, juxtaposition. I mean, even I mean, we're so far more technically advanced than they were then. I I think one of the uh, maybe the makeup artist during mm-hmm. the documentary thing that we watched uh, mentioned that they think Joseph Merrick probably had three different genetic or major uh, syndrome problems that yeah. caused his his deformities and stuff. So. Uh, but even to this day, those, those, those aren't conditions treatable. aren't treatable. Yeah. Proteus syndrome is one of them. Yeah. And it's fatal in a lot of cases, yeah. but it's not something that can be easily cured. Yeah. The the skin disorders, I mean, the, the bone deformities, even if you could cure them, it would be really, really, really difficult. Yeah. And it would require such advanced technologies um, that I don't even think at this point, if someone like Joseph Merrick were to be born... I don't think he would lead a life. He wouldn't be displayed in a freak show. No. Um, but but we would put him on TLC, and he would probably have a TV show yeah. about the 600-pound man or the... The 600-pound head for his or kids. Or whatever, right? Yeah. right? So, I mean, is that really much different? Probably no. not. No, that's but, a very good point. But it's but it we're no we're no better, I think. Exactly. And, and maybe and, that's yeah. maybe that's another another example of yeah. how in 1980. You know, we're 100 years beyond from from that point, and there still wasn't much advancement, at least. Joseph Merrick, yeah. 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 And and to help a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. There's still lots of conditions and and things that we Even ones that we know and have been working on really hard for hundreds of years, they they can't do, like most cancers and stuff, right? So. Yeah, it's so it's not it's not a situation where um, advancement guarantees that you will cure all the ills of society. Um, Clearly. That's not the exactly. that's not the case. Yeah, so. yeah. So it, it, it's definitely a, another theme uh, worth. Maybe not a Lynchian theme, but well, no, but it is. It, it's way, interesting to see him to see him deal with it, though. Exactly, the way it interacts with his old uh, focus on technology yeah, and, man exactly. and and how those two interact as well. Yeah. So uh, it's very interesting. So uh, in terms of 
the shooting style and everything. Yeah. It is it is black and white. Yeah, filmed in black and filmed white, not in filmed in color and then desaturated in the post production process, yeah. um, which was very very expensive at the time. Yeah. And they interviewed the director of photography, Freddie Francis, who was a very famous, well known yeah he's yeah he's uh, cinematographer few, yeah. and and he said that this was the absolute right choice, even though it was very expensive mm-hmm. to do. Um, it just lends it a different feel. And and I guess there were practical concerns for this as well because the makeup artistry didn't have to be yes. um, as precise, I think, color-wise. Yeah. Um, because you could just shoot it in black and white and it would make it more palatable. But I think it also lends it a kind of a, a realistic air too. Like yeah. it's it makes it... I don't know. When I see a photograph that's been colorized or even a color photograph, early, early color photography from the 1800s, mm-hmm. It doesn't feel as old or as um, kind of rooted in the history yeah, as yeah. it as it. Well, would. it's just a cultural expectation. Yeah, that, yeah. That's old how things are old black things and are white. black and white. So, um, so it really adds to that whole Victorian feel. Yeah, definitely. But but again, like like Eraserhead, it's beautifully black and white. Oh, like yeah. it's it's just. It's yeah, so the, wonderfully those, rich. Those shots in the in the in the hospital when yeah. you're first going through and they're turning down all the the gas flames and yeah, all the yeah, rooms yeah. and everything. I mean, those are just beautifully composed shots once again. And and yeah, the black and white just adds this. Mm-hmm. It, it is a little haunting at times, though, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially when the curtains are revealed and the black and white shot of of John Merrick uh, silhouetted in the uh, lecture hall. Yes, um, you know that one is. It didn't matter if that was in color or not, but in black and white, it's just so striking that there's this just um, pained figure that we just mm-hmm. get pointed at with with sticks and stuff like that. There's something about that being in black and white that's just uh, very harrowing because it's it's just like it's good and evil, you know. Mm-hmm. It's 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 again those those systems of contrast where you know he's calling him a human being, but he's talking about him as if he's an animal, right? You know? And right. It, it really creates that that um, interesting dynamic there. Do you think, uh, and this was something that was brought up in the documentary that we watched, that do you think that the, that they made the right choice in revealing uh, Merrick's full body in his condition when they did, or do you think that Lynch's initial feeling to reveal him earlier would have been better? Um, I thought it was early enough. Yeah. I mean, it was it was it was a point of mystery for Treves, and you were along with him on that journey to find the Elephant yeah. Man. Um, and then when it's revealed, I think that feeds into his response. So I, I liked that 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 whole reveal. I thought it was quite um, quite well timed. Um, and then, you know, it, waiting for to see the rest of uh, the real John. You know, the second reveal when yeah. he's quoting scripture. Uh, I thought that was, you know, that that was just as emotional um, and just as as powerful um, as a storytelling device. You know, to see that you think you've seen him. You've seen him naked in front of a canvas, or but wait till you see, see him, him now. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> and it was yeah, I, I loved it. Because I wonder if if it would have humanized him more if we had just seen him and let it let it go. But that that impact might not have been there. But then is that impact part of the problem, right? Because mm-hmm. is that is that feeding into our curiosity, and is that curiosity necessary? Um, there there are still a lot of moral questions that I'm grappling with with this film, just because I'm not sure how. The be- what the best way to respond would be yeah. because of course there's a natural morbid curiosity and that that is going to be stated one way or another but is that is that a good thing or is that something that I should fight against right so if I had just seen him from the beginning if he was the first image on screen mm-hmm. 
it would have gotten the shock factor out of the way maybe but would yeah. would it have had the same impact would i have come to the conclusion that i'm no better than the masses the rabble who are paying to see him at the freak show because i think that's yeah. part of why the reveal later on is so effective because it it puts us on the same moral footing yeah. as the crowds exactly and i, and like, I like that, that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. i mean i'm 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 not falling on one side of the fence or another no, no. with this film. No, it's true. Uh, and the other, you know, uh, filmic uh, elements, I guess I will say, um, you know, there is a there is the dream sequence, which is filmed in a very yeah. kind of lynching way. Uh, there's the screaming mother, yeah, um, and and stuff, which is which feels lynching. The, the, but those moments are few and far between. I think we both said last night we're like this is a very conventionally shot movie even like it's a very conventional story very conventional storytelling uh arc and everything um but even yeah just visually yes it's it's well well composed and all the you know um there's lots of slow pan ins a lot of actor work Mm -hmm. Uh, anthony hopkins does a great job obviously john hurt is amazing uh the actress i forget her name the one who played the actress and bancroft and bancroft uh also did a great job and she wasn't she was in like two three scenes but yeah. she did a really great job of of uh, holding the holding the audience's attention but it the movie relied a lot on that it wasn't like there was you know it's not like a racer head where you know you're falling into a bed <laughs> you know made well, of water and and, and, and and there's a head floating across there's an space. actual script and there's and quite extensive script mm-hmm. and and it's plot driven it's not image driven or emotional emotionally based that yeah. the way that or visually based visually I guess. emotionally yeah, yeah yeah that that lynch's other films are um and that's partly because it's somebody else's story really and so it, it had to be conventional right mm-hmm. but yeah it's it's still but yeah and, and same with the the music is very more or less straightforward i mean there is well the it's not industrial- angelo Badalamenti for starters <laughs> so i mean that was I was they, reading. They didn't someone, start till later, yeah. I was no, and that's true. But um, I was reading that somebody said it was very strange to see, um, not David Lynch cast of crew, yeah, uh, or, or the yeah. the stable of artists stable that of he actors, worked with, yeah, yeah. Um, in the credits, yeah, there were very few that yeah. Alan Sweat was one of them. Yeah. Um, but the music was still great, and there were still some great musical choices. Like I think. Mm-hmm. Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings at the End. Yeah, it's um, just sad. That and Platoon, I think, were the two films <laughs> yeah. that, that used that so it, emotionally. Yeah. <laughs> I'd watched it just recently. I was like, I know that song played in another <laughs> movie, but I couldn't place it, but yeah. But yeah, it, it, I mean, I think that that, um, I mean, it's very manipulative. It's very mm-hmm. um, emotionally drawn out mm-hmm. to have him finish his card um, uh, chapel, chapel or, the, yeah. the cathedral, cathedral that he yeah. made. Um, the model, and then to sign it and then die, right? And and all the while, Barbara's Adagio for Strings yeah, is playing. Like, I mean, it's it's heart wrenching, but but it's done to great effect. And I think that there's a reason that it was mm-hmm. that it was selected, and and it was the right choice. I mean, I can't imagine any other film. I'm really curious now that we've seen more of Lynch's <laughs> works in such close proximity. Watching Dune, yeah. scored by Toto. It's going to be very interesting. <laughs> well, we still have to decide which version of Dune we're going to watch yeah. because there's the director's cut, there's the original. I think release. we should watch both. Really, I really think we should just do both. God, no. We'll see how that goes, but <laughs> but you no, know, but again, yeah. So to wrap it up, basically, did you like the film, Aiden? I I did. It was. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a really hard film to watch. It was. It made me cry for sure. Yeah. Uh, but it was. It was really, really good. I mean, again, I could see why. If you had a a project that required 
um, you know, a deft hand. Mm-hmm. Really, anything I, f- I would feel after watching this, like, yeah, let's give it to David Lynch, which is not the case. I, as we find out with Dune, when he's given that kind of project, it floundered, frankly. I mean, we haven't gotten there yet, but I've watched it. I hated Dune. I don't you enjoy really it at hated all. Dune, but you didn't like was, the book either. So. No, well, the book was the book was okay. It was well written and everything. I just there's some morality to the book that mm-hmm. I didn't agree with. Um, but we can get into that. It's in the movie a little bit too. Um, but yeah, Dune is just it it, it falls apart a little bit. There, mm-hmm. There's odd pacing. The characters are kind of muddy. There's uh, way too much like inner monologue stuff, yeah, yeah. which is. You know, he kind of used as a storytelling crutch and stuff like that. So there's, you know, a, a heavily plot driven story like Dune is not the same as The Alpha Man. The Alpha Man was a very simple story, you know, straightforward, and there was a fair bit of plot to it. But for the most part, you could still focus on the characters and the mood and the well, feeling it's and everything. Well, a human story. I think exactly. that's the point. And yeah. that's where David Lynch does really great work, even as far back as, you know, Eraserhead and. And Elephant Man clearly... Yeah, even the grandmother is, really yeah, is a very human story despite not having any dialogue or right, humans. Really. But it, but it, it deals with, with very common everyday emotions that people mm. are able, able to tap into and um, that help you weave your way through the story. So in that sense, it's... It, he's the perfect choice to do a film like this. Yeah, but, but uh, you know, if, you're st- if your film lacked that emotional core, mm-hmm. I think it would suffer. I think he could have done a fine Empire Strikes Back. I don't see him doing a great Return of the Jedi because there's no plot to that movie and the character stuff is like, Luke, you're my dad, I'm going to... Or Vader, you're my dad, yeah, I'm going to save you. Figure out the story before you start talking Shut about up. it. But yeah, you know what I mean? Like, there's there's really not a whole lot there that he could have worked with. I mean, I would have David loved Lynch to see David Lynch directing that. a documentary. That well, he's be. hasn't he done a few documentaries? Little short ones? Like how to roast your own quinoa or something like that. <laughs> yeah, but that's different. Yeah, I'm thinking different. of like you know Planet Earth. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I really I really enjoyed the Elephant Man as well. I thought that it was it was great as far as a, a historical biopic goes. It's, yeah. Um, it's a perfectly serviceable film. I wouldn't go running out to watch it again. No. But I don't think it's because of anything that the film lacks. I think it's just a hard film to watch, and it yeah. it kind of tugs at your heart and. It's emotionally yeah, it's draining. Like I yeah. went from this and then watched like two hours of Letterkenny afterwards yeah. because I needed some some levity, yeah, you need some, some good old home that. Ontario humor to get me through the darkness of late December. Yeah. But yeah, I mean it's it's definitely um, it's it's a wonderful film and mm-hmm. I think it's been given short shrift by a lot of people just because it doesn't have that quote unquote Lynchian weirdness that everybody expects. And well, not in, in the big quantities that you're expecting. Sure, yeah, style, there are yeah. there are elements of it, but it's it's not Eraserhead and it's not Twin so, Peaks and it's not Drive. Lost it's Highway not, or yeah. Inland Empire. Like yeah. these are not the same films, but there's a, a a beautiful simplicity to it that I still really really enjoy appreciate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, that's it for this. Two weeks, I guess. Yeah. These two weeks would be the proper the grammatical. The fortnights to come will be spent watching Hill Street Blues. Yes, we've decided to forego looking for the missing... Gavilan yeah. series, which I don't think anybody actually has anymore. Maybe it doesn't even exist. I think it was just... 
an IMDb credit that doesn't like <laughs> no, there's the no record of this actually, ever. Well, according to Wikipedia, it aired for three episodes or something. Yeah. But anyways, but anyway, uh, yeah. Well, well, we're gonna look at a few episodes of Hill Street Blues, I yeah. think, to get a sense for um, Mark Frost as head writer of mm-hmm. a TV, a very successful TV series. Yeah. So we we still don't know which episodes those are uh, when we kind of narrow down probably four, five, six episodes we'll yeah, watch. maybe the most. Kind of yeah. get a really good sense of what the show um, was like maybe before he started as head writer and then a few episodes of him as head writer. Yeah. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this because my parents watched Hill Street Yeah, my, my dad loved it. When, yeah. when we told him, we put our parents, we sat my parents down to watch Twin Peaks for the first time and we're like, we're like, oh yeah, it's David Lynch and Mark Frost. I'm like, oh, I've only heard of David Lynch. Who's the Mark Frost guy? I told my dad, well, he was the head writer for Hill Street Blues. Like, really? He's <laughs> the best. That was the best TV show of all yeah. time. Yeah, like, and I mean, everybody says they watch a few episodes and they want to watch the whole thing. So mm-hmm. we may end up shelling out a couple hundred bucks on the <laughs> for the, the whole DVD yeah. series, but yeah. um, that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, that's what our next two weeks will be spent doing. We hope that you'll join us for um, whatever those episodes are. Yeah. We'll let you know. So follow us on on Twitter. I think and Facebook will be letting you guys know which episodes are if you want to join us for the mm-hmm. next installment of the Bix Movie Club of the Bix Movie Club did you hear I said Bix Movie Club If you're enjoying the show and want to join the conversation, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bickeringpeaks, all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter, that's at bickeringpeaks. Or you can head over to iTunes and leave us a review or comment. We'd love to hear from you. 